If you need a Bible this morning, go ahead and raise your hand and somebody will bring a Bible around to you. We are going to be finishing up the book of Genesis today. We're actually looking through quite a bit of scripture. And so it'd be really great for you to be able to have the word in front of you, to be able to flip with me as we look at different things, uh, because it's not all going to be on the screen throughout the sermon. Uh, so we want you to have God's word in front of you as we look into the book of Genesis. And, and we're wrapping this up today. We've been in the book of Genesis over the last couple of months as we've walked through, as we're walking through the beginning of this series that we're walking through the first five books of the Bible. And so we're encouraged this morning uh, to, to finish this up and see what God has to say to us as we wrap up this book. And this series for me personally has been encouraging and challenging, and I hope it has for you as well. Throughout this story, we see the beginning of God's story. And in God's story, God is central. It's a story where we see power, love, sin, grace, impatience, patience, feebleness, strength, faithlessness, faithfulness, deception, flippancy, truth, and resolve. Today we finish up the book of Genesis. And what we're going to look at today as we finish up this book is the life of Joseph, one of Jacob's sons. And in this story, as we wrap up Genesis, it goes out with, with a bit of a bang. It's a dramatic story. It's one of my favorite sections in all of Scripture. There's suspense and intrigue, hope, joy, sadness, brokenness, and reconciliation. And the author of Genesis thinks that this must be an important story for us to get the details in, to pay attention to, because the book of Genesis is only 50 chapters long, but he spends 13 of those 50 chapters talking about Joseph. We have all the things that God has said to Abraham, all the things he's promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, yet he spends 13 chapters of the Holy Scriptures talking about God, his story in Joseph's life, God's story in his life. Now, we could do a whole series, a whole set of sermons on the life of Joseph, but what we're going to do today is we're going to look at his whole life together collectively because out of looking at kind of the big picture of Joseph's life, we see a theme emerge, arise out of this that tells us about our God in his gracious providence. This is not a story to look at this morning and say, man, I want to be like Joseph, though Joseph has very many admirable qualities of faith. But instead, it's a story that we can look at this morning, and I hope that our response from this will be that we will lift our hands in praise and say, I am thankful that Joseph's God is my God, and he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, the story of Joseph, of God's story in Joseph's life is a story. And so I want to tell you that story. And because it's over the course of 13 chapters, I'm going to tell the story and summarize it at points. But at different places, we'll zoom in for more details. So with that, let's jump into the word. You can open your Bible up to Genesis chapter 37, where our story begins with Joseph, one of Jacob's 12 sons. Just as we read this this morning, it'll refer to Israel as being a person. Israel is the name that God gave to Jacob. And so when we say Israel, we're talking about Jacob. We didn't preach on that particular section in Genesis. But just so you know, as we're going along, that's who he's talking about. Starting in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 37, it says this. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons 
because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And jumping to verse 18, they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. In this story of Joseph's life that we're going to see, there's a pattern that develops that happens over and over again, and it's a pattern of both prosperity and pain. It begins in this place of prosperity. Joseph is one of Jacob's 12 sons. And these first few verses of Genesis chapter 37, we learn a bit about Joseph. He's a young man. He's 17 years old. But Joseph is a tattler. I mean, he comes and it says at the very beginning that he comes and brings a bad report to his father about his brothers. Now, we don't know if Jacob has asked Joseph to report on his brothers. But for whatever reason, Joseph feels the obligation to go back to his father and say, hey, my brothers are not doing what they're supposed to be doing out in the field. Joseph is also favored by Jacob. And as we saw a few weeks ago, parental favoritism never leads to good things. Joseph's brothers hate him because of this. They, they don't even have kind words to say to him, peaceful words. Multiple times in this text that we've read, it says his brothers hated him. They hated him even more because of the favoritism that he receives, because of his attitude towards them. But in the midst of this, we also see that Joseph might be a little pompous and self-focused as well. Verses 5 through 8 tell us he has this dream, and he has this dream, and he goes to his brothers and says, hey, guys, listen to this crazy dream that I have. And the meaning is clear to him and to his brothers. His dream is that his brothers are going to bow down to him, and he is going to rule over them as a king. He doesn't share that with him in ignorance. Perhaps there's a bit of superiority he feels because his father favors him over all of his other brothers, and now he has this dream to only cement And encourage the mindset of favoritism that he has. Again, the text says his brothers hate him even more. Now, Joseph doesn't seem to get the clue, the cold shoulder from his brothers. He has another dream and decides it's a good idea to go back and tell them the second dream. Hey, guys, guess what? Not only are you going to bow down to me, but mom and dad are too. The hatred that his brothers have for them comes to a breaking point. Jacob asks Joseph to go out into the fields to check on his brothers. Maybe Joseph was a good tattler. And so his dad asked him to go out in the field and say, hey, give me a report of what's going on with your brothers. And they see him from a distance and decide to do something evil. Verses 18 through 20 say this. They saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. 
Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. His brothers in the depths of their wicked hearts are fed up with Joseph. They decide the best solution to the own sin that they have in their own heart, the own, their own jealousy within their own heart is to sin even more against Joseph and their family by killing him. But God is at work in this moment. One of Joseph's brothers is not there, his brother Reuben. And Reuben finds out about this plot and says, hey guys, let's not kill Joseph. That wouldn't be a good thing for us to do. He, he doesn't think that's a good idea. And so instead, what they decide to do is just throw him into a pit and figure out what they're going to do with him. Verses 23 through 25 say, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. That was a reminder to them that their father favored him over them. They took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. And then they sat down to eat. And his brothers have a flippant attitude towards Joseph. They have a flippant attitude towards even what they've done. They strip him of his clothes, throw him in a pit, and then they have lunch. Sitting around, maybe discussing what they're going to do. Judah, one of Joseph's older brothers, comes up with another plan. Says, if we're not going to kill him, we have to do something with him. And he sees a band of traders off in the distance coming towards him. He says, guys, I've got an idea. Let's sell him to these band of traders. That'll remove him from us. He'll be sent away. We can lie to our father about what's happened to him. We'll get some money and blood won't be on our hands. His brothers think, not a bad idea. Let's do that. So they get him out of this pit. They sell him to these traders for 20 pieces of silver. Joseph, the favored son of Jacob, The son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, this family of promise is now on his way to Egypt as a slave. But God is at work. Now, the reason we need to spend time looking at chapter 37 here, seeing what's happening is because it really sets the foundation, sets the story for what is about to happen as God's story plays out in Joseph's life. What we need to acknowledge from the beginning is, is that the dreams that Joseph has are given to him by God. The dreams that he has are given to him by God and they set in motion the plans of God. As one pastor says, what we see here is that both human sin and divine revelation are used to do God's good work. It all sets in plan what looks like to be a personal disaster for Joseph. He has all the riches of his family and yet now he is stripped naked, shackled and being taken off to Egypt as a slave, but it's not a personal disaster. In fact, what we see here is the beginning of a work of God's grace. Genesis continues to be a book about grace. We re-engage with the story of Joseph in chapter 39, and we see some key things that take place here, and we need to note the cycle of prosperity and pain that begins to develop in Joseph's life. Joseph has now been sold to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh in Egypt. In verse 2 through 4 of chapter 39 says this, The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. God is with Joseph. 
In the midst of this unbelievable pain in his life, he's been ripped away from his family, brought to a foreign land in a place that he has no idea what this is like. And he's there all alone by himself, but he's not alone. God is with Joseph. God has not abandoned Joseph in this most difficult part of his life. He is sustaining him and he also seeks to bless him because God is at work. God helps Joseph to be successful And Potiphar, his master, sees this in him and elevates him now to a place of leadership, to running his whole house. Joseph has now gone from a place of prosperity with his family, the favored one among his father, to a place of pain in a slave slave trade with these slave traders and being sold into the house of Potiphar. But now he's returned to a place of prosperity. He is over all of Potiphar's house. God is working and things seem to be going, going on the up and up for Joseph. I'm in a bad situation. I'm in a bad spot. But I have all the riches of Egypt at my disposal at this point in the house of Potiphar. But then things get interesting again in Joseph's life. Joseph is serving faithfully in his master's house. But then he is wrongfully and horribly accused of raping Potiphar's wife. Because she, she wants to sleep with Joseph. But he refuses He says, I can't sin against my master. I can't sin against my God. Even in the most difficult situation of Joseph's life, he continues to be faithful to God. So Potiphar hears of his wife's accusations and throws Joseph in prison. Now, twice, Joseph has been punished for something he did not do. Thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, and now put into a pit of a prison because of something he didn't do. From a place of prosperity, he is once again in a place of pain. Chapter 39, verse 21 says, though, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. God continues to be with Joseph in the dark pit that is his life now. A literal dark pit. God continues to be with Joseph and show his steadfast love to him. And so he, he causes Joseph to find favor with the guard of the prison. And, and Joseph is elevated to this place of prosperity. Again, of course, relative to his situation, he's still a prisoner in prison. But he's put in charge of all the other prisoners. Everything Joseph did, he succeeded in because God made it so. God is at work. In chapter four, 40, we see the drama continue to unfold. Two of Pharaoh's servants, both his cupbearer and his baker, have displeased Pharaoh in some way. And they are thrown into this prison where Joseph is in charge of the prisoners. They both have dreams. And they're troubled by their dreams because they don't really know if they mean something. If they should understand them to have a message that they need to know. So Joseph asks them to tell them the dreams that they've had. and By God's help that he might interpret the meaning of them if there is a meaning. And so the cupbearer tells Joseph his dream and Joseph tells him what this dream means is, is you're not going to stay in prison. You'll be restored to Pharaoh. You'll once again be his cupbearer. The baker tells him his dream and things aren't so good for him. He says, what your dream means is that you will not be restored, but instead hanged for your crimes. And it's in the midst of this story, though, that Joseph shares his plight and pleads with the cupbearer. Chapter 40, verses 14 through 15, Joseph says to him, Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. 
For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Joseph's thinking, maybe this is my way out. I believe in God's faithfulness to interpreting this dream. This cupbearer is going to get out of prison. Maybe if I can just have a friend on the outside, it can get me out of this, and I won't be in this situation anymore. I'll be brought out of the pit where I didn't deserve to be in the first place. The interpretation Joseph gives comes true. The cupbearer is restored to his role with Pharaoh, but the story does not go as Joseph hopes. Verse 23 of chapter 40 says, Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. He's forgotten, left in prison, back in a place of pain once again. Chapter 41, verse 1 says that he is two years go by. He is in this place. After the cupbearer has left and he's been removed from the prison, Joseph remains there for two years. Now, can we just stop at this moment and say that we shouldn't think that Joseph is just smiling his way through prison, that this is easy for him along the way, that he's quiet and stoic. There are most likely times of difficulty and anguish, wrestling with what's going on, perhaps even questioning, God, I believe you, God, I trust you, but why is this happening? I didn't even do anything wrong. What is going on? Have you forgotten me, God, as the cupbearer? forgot me. But God is at work, and God has not forgotten Joseph. Two years go by, and Pharaoh now has two dreams, two dreams that are very similar to one another, and no one can interpret them. No one can come up with the meaning of this for Pharaoh, and he is troubled by this, and the cupbearer remembers Chapter 41, verses 12 through 13, the cupbearer says, A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Pharaoh hears this from this cupbearer who he knows he threw in prison, believes the cupbearer, trusts him and says, look, I know a guy. I know a guy that can interpret your dreams. Would you trust me, Pharaoh? You should, you should talk to this man and see if he can interpret your dreams since no one else can. And so Pharaoh hears this. He summons Joseph out of the prison to come stand before him to tell him his dreams. So Joseph comes and stands before the king of Egypt. Pharaoh says, can you interpret these dreams? But we see the faith and the faithfulness of Joseph once again at a key opportunity in his life when he could claim the credit for everything that's happened to him, that he has the ability to interpret dreams. He doesn't take it. He gives it to God. Verse 16, chapter 41. It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. If I'm to interpret the dream, it will be by God's grace and power, not anything in myself. So Pharaoh tells Joseph his two dreams, and Joseph interprets them. He said there's one meaning to these two dreams. There will be seven years of plenty in the land of Egypt, but right after that it will be followed by seven years of famine in all the land. There will be no food. And in this moment, Joseph suggests to Pharaoh to save up food so that the famine, when the famine comes, there will be a storehouse of food for his people to eat. Pharaoh likes this idea and in fact says, I think you should be the one that runs the program. He puts Joseph in charge. God is at work in Joseph's life. God is with Joseph. 
And Joseph is returned to a place of prosperity. From the pit of darkness in his life, he is elevated to the throne. And it's all God's doing. Chapter 41, verse 46 says that Joseph is 30 years old when he is put into this position for Pharaoh. 13 years have gone by. 13 years have passed since Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. And it has been a journey of ups and downs, of pain and prosperity. The seven years of plenty come and Joseph does what he says he's going to do. He stores up food in Egypt. But others hear of this storehouse too and they come from all over the place to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph. And Jacob, Joseph's own father, is in the land of Canaan, which is also suffering from this famine. And he hears about this. Egypt has food. And so he sends his sons to do the same thing, to go and inquire and buy food for their family. At this point now, 20 years have passed since Joseph was sold into slavery. 20 years have passed since Joseph has even seen his brothers. 20 years have passed since Joseph's brothers have laid eyes on him, since they heard him crying out from the pit to get, them, get him out of there. But God is at work. Joseph is the one who's in charge of selling food. And so his very own brothers come and stand before him. Chapter 42, verses 6 through 8 say, Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Does it sound like a dream? Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. This is insane. The last time that these guys have seen one another was when they threw Joseph into a pit, drew him back out again, and sold him off to a slave trader. And now they come and they stand before him. And Joseph is essentially the second in command of all of Egypt. And they're asking him for help. And Joseph doesn't reveal himself to them right away. He tests them in multiple ways. And we don't have time to get into that at the moment. But in the midst of this, Joseph is overcome with emotion several times, multiple times as he interacts with his brothers who have done such wickedness to him. He hears that his brothers are even sorry for their sin against Joseph, acknowledging that what they did to him was wrong. Joseph hears that his brother, that his father is still alive. Joseph hears that his brother Benjamin is alive, and then he actually gets to even see him. And the story reaches a climax in chapter 45. Look at chapter 45 with me. Verses uh, 1 through 8. Joseph is with his brothers, and it says this in verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. This is some intense crying going on. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers cannot answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Can you imagine this? I mean, he's standing there. They haven't seen this brother. They assume he's dead. He says, I am Joseph. It's me, guys. 
that would leave you pretty speechless as you stand before this man who has so much power, who you are asking to buy food for your family to survive. This is your very brother. They're scratching their heads going, I, I, I don't get it. I can't even wrap my mind around this. I, rem- I, I imagine they're still at a distance from him, not stepping forward, just their mouths hanging open. So verse four says, so Joseph says to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Almost like he has to clarify it, right? Like me, Joseph, the one that you tried to kill and get rid of. And then he says this, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Man, this is crazy. He's standing before his brothers, the ones who hated him, who wanted him dead, who sold him into slavery. But notice what he says to them over and over again. Do not be dismayed. God sent me here, verse 5. Do not be in trouble. Do not think ill of yourself anymore. What you did to me was wicked. But verse 7, God sent me ahead of you to preserve you. In verse 8, it was not you who sent me, but God. God has been at work. God is at work. And God has done this work. Now Joseph doesn't minimize the evil his brothers inflicted on him. He, he acknowledges the fact that they have sold him into slavery. He acknowledges the fact that they have done this wickedness toward him, toward him. But he saw and sees the larger purposes of God and the events that transpired. See, Joseph is a recipient of mercy and grace. He realizes that God has been with him. He realizes that God has sustained him through all of these things. And so now as he stands before his brothers and his brothers before him as the recipient of grace, he is now a giver of mercy and grace towards them. He knows he did nothing in himself to be in the position that he is. God did this work. He has been saved so that others might be saved. God is at work. The chapters 46 through 49 are important chapters in the scriptures, but we don't have time to get into them today. But what we see in these next few chapters is that Jacob brings his whole family now to Egypt. Seventy people are coming to Egypt with Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A promise made to Abraham long ago that your seed would multiply, that you would have more descendants than there are stars in the heavens or sand on the seashores beginning to take form. Seventy people now are a part of Abraham's family. Jacob is reunited with his son. It's an amazing picture of restoration and God's grace. But the years go by as they remain in Egypt and Jacob dies. And at this point, Jacob's, I mean, Joseph's brothers are still not understanding grace. That they still don't understand mercy because they're fearful now that because Jacob is dead, that Joseph will now enact vengeance on them. Say, dad is gone. Now I'm going to take out my revenge on you. And so they concoct this lie saying that Jacob wants Joseph to forgive his brothers. And so they go and ask for Joseph's forgiveness once again to extend grace to them. 
into one of the best and most significant texts in Genesis, maybe in the whole Bible, Joseph reiterates again what has happened. Chapter 50, verses 19 through 21, Joseph says this, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Joseph knows he can't be the judge of his brothers. He's not in the place to do that. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph reiterates again that what they did was evil, what they did was wrong, and all their intention was only evil, was only wrong, was only sinful, but God has redeemed their evil actions and used them for good because God is above all. He is sovereign and providential over all things. See, Joseph gets it. God's story in his life is a picture of God's gracious providence towards his people. And that word providence, maybe you've heard it before. It's not just a place in Rhode Island. What does the word providence mean? There's a few definitions that I think are helpful. The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines providence in this way. It says, God's work of providence is his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. As one pastor puts it, He defines providence this way. He says, our great creator uses his creative power to keep all creation in existence, to involve himself in all events, and to direct all things to their appointed end. God is a sustainer of your life, and God is a sustainer of his world. God is at work in the details of your life, and God is at work in the world. God cares for all that he has made. God brings restoration and rescue through his providential provision and plan and grace towards his people. Everything in Joseph's life, everything, every detail, both the prosperity and the pain have been a gift of grace and a part of God's providence to save his people, to bring about redemption. But see, all along the way, Joseph never gets the roadmap. God doesn't tell him when he's sitting in a pit and his brothers won't listen to him. God doesn't tell him when he's sitting in a jail cell, wrongly accused. God doesn't tell him when a cupbearer forgets him. God doesn't tell him when he's sitting in a castle with all the riches of Egypt at his disposal. God does not tell Joseph what he's doing, but God is at work. And Joseph trusts in the goodness of God, both in the pain and the prosperity. Joseph believes that God is going to be faithful to what he said he would do. And that's his hope. Even when he can't see what tomorrow might bring, even if he doesn't know why things are happening the way that they are, God, Joseph continues to trust God. God is at work in the ordinary aspects of Joseph's life. He's not just the God of the extraordinary. He's the God of the ordinary. And he's working through ordinary people to do ordinary things in order to preserve his people. The gracious providence of God must be one of the most comforting and glorious truths about God revealed to us in his word. Because God's providence affects every single person. There is no person outside of the providence of God. Our individual lives at various points, maybe even on a daily basis, become twisted with and entangled by sin. 
whether it's our own sin or the sin of those around us or just the general fallenness of the world, it affects us every day, all of the time. We live in a world and are in relationships that are marred by and jacked up by sin. But, but if we know God, if we follow God, we can know that in the midst of the most complex things of your life, that God is at work to do you good to achieve his plans and purposes for your life and for his people. We see this in Joseph's life. We see God's providence in Joseph's life. Even when Joseph doesn't know what's going on, his brothers have no idea what's happening. But all along the way, God is working for his good and the good of his people. Paul reiterates this same thought in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, Paul says, All things work together for good for those who are called according to God's purpose. All things work together for good. All means all. No matter what is going on in your life and my life right now, what's happened in the past, what's happening presently, or what happens in the future in your life, all things, Paul says, are working for good. Whether it's illness, difficulties with your kids, Difficulties with your parents, difficulties with your friends, problems at work, even in the prosperous times of your life, God is working all things together for your good. Now, Romans 8, 28 does not say that all things are good, but that God is going to bring about a good end, namely to make you more like Jesus. We have a God of providence That was good news for us this morning. We have a God of providence who sustains our souls through all of life. That is good news, comforting news to us, knowing that our God cares for us like he did Joseph. Joseph believes God even when things are not clear and the pain is very real in his life. There are many moments, long days and nights with no answers and no hope in Joseph's life except in the goodness and faithfulness of God. That's all he has to rely on as he sits in a dark prison cell. Psalm 105 tells us that Joseph's feet are hurt with fetters. His neck was in an iron iron collar. This is not a feel-good thing in Joseph's life, yet it's God doing this work. God has brought him here. But in the midst of this, he trusts in the providence of God, even over evil intentions and actions. Because he believes God is faithful. He believes God is good. Sojourn, our comfort, our comfort on a day in and day out basis, no matter what's going on in our life, whether it's good or it's bad, our comfort must be in a God who is providential and sovereign. Because a God of our own making, a God who is not in control, is an impotent God. He is nothing, has nothing, and can do nothing. There's no hope in a God like that. And in fact, a God like that looks a lot more like us than the true God. But the providence of God should be comfort to our soul, and we should see it as a gift of grace to us. That even in the unexplainable, unexplainable difficulties of our life or the most lackluster day, God is at work. See, when we don't trust God, When we don't rest in his providence, knowing that he's good, even though we can't see how this is going to shape out for our good, when we don't trust him, whether in pain or prosperity, we start to wander away. Because it's in the midst of difficulty in our life that our desire for control is pressed on and brought to the forefront of our life. When things are out of our control, 
we begin to wander away. We become anxious, fearful, angry, despondent, depressed, bitter, discontent, prideful, self-sufficient. We seek to escape. Now, many of us in this room carry scars and wounds. But we cannot become enslaved to bitterness and victimhood. It's not to minimize anything evil that's happened into your life. Joseph could have, could have developed bitterness in his life. He could have become a victim. And, and that, should have been, that could have been his identity. But he rises above that because he trusts in a God who is faithful to redeem. The same thing is true for you today. The pains and difficulties of your life are real. But God is greater than those things. And he is a redeemer who redeems. See, the greatest story of evil intentions used for good is seen in the cross of Christ. Like Joseph, Jesus was betrayed by his brothers. Like Joseph, Jesus was sold out for pieces of silver. Like Joseph, Jesus is delivered over by evil men to evil men. Like Joseph, Jesus was punished for things he did not do. Like Joseph, Jesus experienced the darkness. Like Joseph, Jesus goes from a place of prosperity to unbelievable pain. But unlike Joseph, Jesus is crucified for the sins of the world. The wrath of God is poured out on him for Joseph's sins and for your and my sins, not his own. But in this moment of great evil, God was always intending and had providentially planned it for good. Before the foundation of the world, God had planned this for Jesus. Planned it so that he might redeem and rescue and restore the world to himself. And like Joseph, the path of suffering for Jesus leads to the eternal throne. And like Joseph, Jesus reveals himself to you now and says, I am the Christ. The son of the living God, the one who's come to save the world, to redeem you, to restore you, to reconcile you to the holy God. Like Joseph, Jesus invites you to come to him, to dine with him, to be with him, to be rescued and restored by him. So if you don't know Christ, or if you've wandered away from Christ, if you're not trusting in Christ today, then man, let me call you to him today. Jesus is calling you to himself today. Say, I endured the darkness that you might be set free from that. I can be trusted. I am good. No matter what's going on, wherever you're weary, wherever you're heavy laden, come to me. Cast your burdens on me because I care for you. Do you need to come to Jesus today? And maybe you even call yourself a follower of Christ, but you're just not trusting in Christ today. You're not trusting in God's goodness today. Let me call you to him today. Rest in him today. Sojourn, Jesus is our refuge and our rock, whether we're in a place of pain or a place of prosperity. We have to know that God's story in your life is often bigger than you. It's often bigger than you. You may not know the beginning or the end of it entirely. You don't know what's going on, but we can trust that God is at work. And when we're in Christ, we can trust in God and his providence. And that means that instead of anxiety and fear, we can have peace and freedom. Instead of anger, we can have love and patience and gentleness. Instead of despondency and depression, we can have joy and hope. Instead of bitterness, we can have grace and forgiveness. 
Instead of discontentedness, we can have contentment and thankfulness. Instead of escapism, we can be engaged and faithfully follow in pursuing Christ. Instead of pride and self-sufficiency, we can have godly humility and dependence on Him. Look, you need to know this morning that every sin that has been committed against you will be dealt with. There is nothing that has happened in your life where someone has hurt you or sinned against you that won't ultimately be dealt with. It'll either be dealt with in the torments of hell for all eternity or it's at the cross of Christ. God does not allow those things to go by without being dealt with. And you can rest in that. That means that all of God's goodness to you, all of his grace towards you is manifest and made manifest in and through Jesus. If God is for you, who can be against you? Sojourn, there is so much freedom. There is so much freedom when we embrace the gracious providence of God. When we can walk through life, not carrying the burden of not knowing what tomorrow brings, but trusting in the God who does. John Piper, who was a pastor in Minneapolis, tweeted something back in 2012, and it's stuck in my mind since then. In 140 characters or less, he says this. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life. And maybe you are aware of three of them. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life. And at any given moment in time, maybe you're aware of one or two or three of them. God is at work. And God is working all things for good. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that to be true this morning? Even when you can't see the myriad of things that God is doing at this given moment, at this given time in your life, do you believe that he's good? Do you believe he's at work? And do you believe he's working things to a good end for you? All means all, whether pain or prosperity, whether you had a good childhood or a bad childhood, whether you had good parents or bad parents, or maybe you didn't even know your parents, whether you've excelled in your education or you've struggled just to make it through high school, whether your present job is exactly where you want to be or you are struggling to make it another day with where your work is, whether your relationships are great, whether you have tons of friends and great relationships or you're struggling to identify anyone as a friend, whether you have kids or you don't have kids, whether in sickness or in health, even the church community that God has brought you to be a part of, do you believe that God is at work in your life, that God has providentially brought you to be a part of this family for a reason, to conform you to the image of his son? In my own life, we have seen God's providence. And again, there's 10,000 things going on in any given moment, but every once in a while, God in his grace, I think, shows us his providence. I've shared this before over the last two years at different points in times, but it's relevant this morning. And so maybe you've never heard this. Back in Amy and I have been married almost 11 years, 11 years on Saturday, uh, next Saturday. But when we had been married for four years back in 2007, we were beginning the process of trying to have a family. We wanted to have kids. We believe that's a good desire God's given us is to be fruitful and multiply. And so we wanted to have children. And so we were trying to get pregnant and weeks went by and months went by and a year went by and nothing was happening. And so we went to get some testing done just to see 
if there was something going on, just to kind of get an idea if there was something wrong. And we got a phone call. In October of 2008, and a doctor sat on the other end of that phone and said, you have a 1% chance of getting, getting pregnant on your own. Outside of drastic medical intervention, which we felt was morally and ethically not okay. And so we sat here hanging up the phone, thinking about our God who says that he's sovereign and he's good. It's easy to believe in God's sovereignty. It's easy to believe in his providence when things are going well. But when we have struggles in life... We really see if we believe what we say we believe. And in that moment, we said, man, do I believe that God is good? Do I believe that he's sovereign, that he is providential over our life? By God's grace, we trusted him through that, even though that was difficult, even though that was hard. But God continued to move in our life. And as we continued to pray and think about what God was doing, we were in the beginning stages of thinking about pursuing adoption and In the midst of that, we said, man, I think God's moving us away from where we were living in Leesburg at the time to go and finish seminary full time so I could finish my degree. And we could just step away from where we were and just pray about what God would have for us in our life. We had thought about church planting over the years and just wanted to pray about that more and just step away and just be in a community where we could really just figure out, is God calling us to plant a church? And so we moved to Louisville, Kentucky in 2009. And the week after we got there... My wife says she thinks she needs to take a pregnancy test. I think they're really expensive, so I (laughs) wait for a while. Okay, fine, you can take one, and she takes one, and now we have a four-year-old named Owen. So we're sitting in a place nine and a half hours away from all of our family, but we're in this place, and through that time, Man, we got involved in a church community that was talking about church planting and help us to figure out if that's what should we do. We were in seminary and I was learning lots of things. And through that journey, we learned about God's grace in a rich way. And God molded us and shaped us. And through that time, confirmed that he was, in fact, calling us to plant a church here in Northern Virginia. And he sent us back to this place to plant this church. This church is here today. The gospel is being preached in this room today because Amy and I cannot get pregnant when we wanted to in 2007 through 2009. See, in my pragmatism, if we'd already had kids, I would never have moved to Louisville. (laughs) I never would have picked up my family and moved across the country to finish up seminary with no money, bleeding our savings account out. But man, God knew what he was doing. God sent us there to grow us and mold us and shape us to send us back here to plant this church. And God was at work in our life. Look at me. God is at work in your life right now. Whether you can see it or not, God is at work in your life right now. He is in control of all things in your life right now. In the midst of the difficulties of life, when we don't know what's going on, when we don't know why something is happening or why it's happened to us. What I'm not saying is that we should just look to each other. We should just say to each other, well, God's sovereign. It's working all things for good. It'll be okay. Remember, a moment of difficulties and the heart-wrenching grief that you might have experienced or are experiencing, in that moment, that's not the most life-giving thing for you. 
In those moments, though, what we can encourage one another with is the same truth that helped Joseph when he's sitting in the darkness of a pit. And that is God is with you. God is with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And like Mary ran to Jesus when her brother Lazarus had died with tears in her eyes, you too can run to Christ with tears in your eyes, not even words, just tears. Fall on him, casting your burdens on him because you know that he cares for you. We trust that God is graciously providential and good by faith. And even when we're struggling to believe this, even when we're struggling to believe it, then our true cry should be, Lord, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Maybe you're in the middle of something right now or something has happened to you and you do not see how God could be using this for good. See, maybe in other parts of life, but you don't know about my life. You don't know about this thing that's happened to me. I don't see how this can be used for good. And honestly, you might not ever know. But don't let the lack of knowledge draw you away from God. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Instead, run to him, believing that the one who gave his only son for you will graciously give you all things. And that this light and momentary affliction in your life will actually be light and momentary when you see Jesus face to face. Even if you can't see it, even if you don't know how this could be the, be the case, trust in the one who has the words of life. Trust in the one who is before all things and in him all things hold together. Trust in the one who says, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you again. Trust in the one who says, behold, I am making all things new. That is our greatest hope in the midst of our lives. It's our only hope. There's nothing else that can sustain us. Whether life is good or bad, whether it's exciting or boring, whether it's easy or difficult, whether it's joyful or sorrowful, Christ is our only hope. And Christ has come and he will come again. And what we see in a mirror dimly right now, we will see fully on that day. Look, we do not call evil good. Evil remains evil. Sin remains sin. But in Christ, we declare that evil and sin do not succeed. You will have pain and trouble in this life, but take heart, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. Sojourn, Jesus has overcome. He has overcome. Joseph rested in the overcoming goodness and grace of God in the good and in the bad. So may that be your sustaining grace today. May that sustain you and that you would trust in God's good providence. May that nourish your soul today and every day until he comes again. Man, can we encourage one another with that? Can you look to your brothers and sisters on a week in and week out in basis and encourage them with the truth that God is with them and that God is at work even if we can't see it? Can we tell our suffering world the good news of Jesus and of our only hope that's in him? Can we tell the world about God's sovereign, sustaining grace? Sojourn, God's power is made perfect in your weakness. His grace is sufficient for you today. And to that we can say amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Today, we wrap up the book of Genesis. And the book of Genesis is all about grace. And we see God's grace in, in his story in Joseph's life of good overcoming evil. 
And so as we come forward this morning to eat the bread and drink the cup, let's be reminded and encouraged that in in the darkest hour of history, as the eternal son of God was bearing the righteous wrath of God for sin, he did not commit. God was doing the greatest good. Jesus endured the shame and pain of the cross in order that you and I might be set free from sin and the effects of sin in this life and forever. And so as you eat the bread this morning, as you drink the cup, may it feed your soul, knowing that Christ has come and will come again. May the very presence of Christ comfort you today as you take the bread and drink the cup. May it sustain you today so that you can say in the depth of your heart, blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord, for he is good and his love endures forever in all situations, in all circumstances of life. And if you're not a follower of Christ, we would just encourage you not to come forward, ask you not to come forward to take communion this morning. Because for us, this is a declaration that Jesus is our only hope. And so if Christ is not your only hope this morning, if you've never trusted in Christ, repented of your sin and and trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sin, then we don't want you to come forward to take the bread and the cup. We want you to take Christ today. He is here. He calls you to himself. Come to me. Rest in me. Find life in me. And so if you need to turn to Christ today, we want to implore you and beg you to do that today. And you can talk to me afterwards or Alan or any of our other leaders here this morning. We'd love to journey with you to help you understand what it means to know and follow Jesus. And those of you that will come forward, you can come forward when you're ready to receive the elements and take a small piece of bread and a small cup to drink. And what Jesus did for you will be spoken over you. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful that you give us your word. We're so grateful for the book of Genesis. Lord, we didn't even get to preach through every aspect of this book. But over these last few months, Lord, we have seen that Genesis is a book of grace. It tells us of your grace. It tells us of your goodness. It tells us of your faithfulness to your plans and to your people. And Lord, that should be so encouraging to us than the ordinary parts of our life and the difficult parts of our life to know that you are faithful to us even if we can't see what's happening. If we feel like we're in a fog, we can say with the psalmist that though we walk through a valley of the shadow of death that we don't fear evil, we know that you go with us, that you lead us to a place of peace. And we might not even experience that here in this life, but we know that there is a new heaven and a new earth and a new city that's coming. And the king of kings will sit on a throne, wiping away every tear, saying, behold, I make all things new. Lord, help us to rest in that today. Help us to find hope in that today. And as we go out from this place, that that would be what we encourage with people with and share it with others, that they might come to know Christ and place their hope in him. Lord, we need your grace And we thank you for your providence over every aspect of our life. Help us, Lord, to know and believe that you are good. We love you and we thank you that you love us more than we know. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.